KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the Supreme Court, in the term that just ended, was not completely terrible. It surprised us all by doing some good things, especially with regard to voting rights. David Cole, National Legal Director of the ACLU, will explain. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, the big news today is the actor's strike. 160,000 members of the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA will be on the picket lines tomorrow morning. It'll be the first actor's strike since 1980, 43 years ago. That one lasted three months. This one will immediately stop production on all movies and streaming and TV shows. Big news in LA, and I think it's big news everywhere. Well, it is big news everywhere since, uh, you know, enter- broadcast and narrowcast and streamed entertainment is, is one of the signature industries uh, of the United States globally and uh, a huge cultural imprint on the nation and the world. At the press conference, Fran Drescher, the president of SAG and the head of the negotiations committee, emphasized how far apart the studios and the unions uh, still are. And Robert Iger, the head of Disney, told the media yesterday that the unions, quote, just aren't realistic. He made this statement while at Sun Valley at what the media call billionaires summer camp. Of course, his compensation is totally realistic, $27 million a year. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Hollywood moguls, uh, the studio heads historically, have been among the highest paid company heads in the country. In the beginning in the late 1920s, throughout the 1930s, the highest paid uh, American company head was Louis B. Mayer at, uh, at MGM. The LA Times has documented how uh, executives like Iger and David Zaslav at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery or whatever the heck it's called made hundreds of millions of dollars over the last over the last five years. Now you know the executives say, and they're right, that you know the world of streaming and things like this has cast a certain degree of uncertainty over the the whole medium, uh, the, the whole media used by the industry. Actors uh, following the lead of the writers who've already been on strike for several months are saying, look, you know, the number of times a product is streamed can be monitored. We can be compensated best, you know, uh, fairly based on that, just as we were getting residuals when movies and TV shows uh, that showed up on, uh, on TV screens. The studios don't want to do that. And uh, for a number of other reasons, and this reason, I think perhaps primarily, we are at what I think will be a prolonged loggerheads and a prolonged strike. Yeah, so the actors will be joining the 11,500 members of the Screenwriters Union. As you say, they've been on strike It's now 73 days. The last time the actors and the screenwriters were both on strike was 1960. And you know who the head of SAG was in 1960? 
Ronald Reagan, president of the Screen Actors Guild. There you go. And the first president of the Screen Actors Guild back in the early 1930s was then MGM star Robert Montgomery, (laughs) who, like Reagan, became a major fixture in a different capacity in Republican circles. He was the first television advisor an American president ever had uh, to uh, Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s. So SAG has been all over the map in, 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 in a sense, vis-a-vis the politics of its leaders in the 1980s. It was headed by Ed Asner, who was a democratic socialist and uh, fairly open about that. So the union has, uh, has been around and has often encountered real opposition from the studios. Uh, and, you know, the absence of a figure like Lou Wasserman, who for years was the uh, uh, capo de tutti capo of, uh, of the Hollywood studios and who was sort of a genius for working back channels and cutting deals with unions. Uh, you know, you don't find CEOs like that anymore today. And the industry was not quite in the kind of turmoil, you know, for other factors during, during his tenure. Well, the primary concern of the studio heads is not the <clears throat> actors or the writers. It's Wall Street. It's their stock price. And Netflix stock is way up. Uh, Disney stock is way down because of various management problems. They have mistakes they have made. The rest are pretty much steady. And the actors feel that it's that Wall Street is kind of willing to take this strike because they would really like to see the unions defeated. And there was a report in the trade press earlier this week that the studios in particular want to break the screenwriters union. The industry publication Deadline reports that Warner Brothers Discovery, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, Disney, and Paramount have become determined to, quote, break the WGA. That's a quote from one studio exec. They said uh, to do so, the studios believe that by October, most writers will be running out of money after five months on the picket lines and no work. The end game, this is continuing to quote from a studio executive, is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. In other words, they want to drive the writers to homelessness. Then they said, in that context, the studios feel they would be in a position to dictate the terms of a possible uh, deal. Do you think this is just propaganda, tough talk, or do you think this is really what some studio executives think? Well, depending on the individual executive, I think it's both. This is basically, you know, the management sentiment across the whole American labor market. I mean, most CEOs don't have to worry about these kinds of strikes because they've already illegally fended off attempts to form unions. So in that sense, and, and, and in terms of the increased role that Wall Street plays, this is also a factor in what's changed in American industry. There was a, uh, a marvelous line, uh, I, I, I think, from Barry Lynn, who heads one of the antitrust organizations in Washington here, that you know, at some point in uh, the 1980s, CEOs stopped being the representative of the company to the investors and became the investor's man hovering over the company. Uh, and and that, that's pretty much the case 
I think we uh, we we see with uh, Hollywood today. It's uh, it's a real issue, and this only is sort of an extreme example of uh, the outsized role that Wall Street plays across the economy, which was not the case in the first three decades after World War II, when New Deal legislation still effectively uh, hemmed in Wall Street and not coincidentally was the one period of broadly shared prosperity in uh, the good old USA. Well, we've been learning a lot about the uh, the history of the actors' uh, strikes and under uh, SAG. The nineteen sixty strike is the one that got a health plan for actors and got pensions for actors. So they consider that just a kind of bedrock turning point in their history. The nineteen eighty strike, three months long, was not so clearly victorious. A lot of people felt the actors lost uh, more than they gained. They voted to accept the contract that didn't really give them the residuals they wanted. The issue at that point, not so different from today, was the rise of video, video cassettes, VCRs. Mm -hmm. The the studios uh, offered them better health benefits, but did not offer them a very good deal on residuals for video. And that kind of paved the way to Ed Asner becoming president, as I understand it. He represented the more militant left-wing segment that wanted to get a, a better deal. Of course, in 1980, you were just a kid, so you probably don't remember all this. Well, I I wasn't a kid. I'm 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 so damn old. I was uh, I was 30 years old in 1980, and I I will say that over the subsequent decade, I did write a couple of speeches for Ed Asner, though they were speeches about uh, national policy not related to the industry. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also emblematic of the fact that 1960 was still a time generally of union power in the United States. And in 1980, uh, you had begun to see that power already significantly wane. Um, the previous year, the president of the United Auto Workers, Doug Fraser, put out, I think, a historic memo ending his participation in a joint labor management body saying it was clear that uh, auto company and other CEOs had turned against unions. And that, that is true. And it has become only more so, uh, only more so ever since. Well, if our listeners are wondering how this is going to affect their favorite TV shows and streaming shows, uh, I turned to Variety and they reported very clear rundown on, on what is going to be stopping production at, at the top of the list. FX has a series based on the Alien franchise that is being produced in Thailand. That is going to shut down. HBO's White Lotus is supposed to shoot season three in Thailand. That is going to shut down. And the other two big high-budget things, which I know are big favorites of yours that you've been looking forward to, Gladiator 2 and Mortal Kombat 2. The first filming in Morocco, the second filming in Australia. This is the geniuses who run the studios. This is kind of the level of their creativity. Let's make a sequel to Gladiator, a sequel to Mortal Kombat. And indeed, they make hundreds of millions of dollars off of these movies. Well, this is why I support that the studio heads lose their jobs to artificial intelligence. <laughs> because uh, so much of what they do is completely formulaic. The nth remake of a Marvel or a DC comic epic. The actors have expressed concern, beginning with a statement from Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence about, among other things, uh, use of AI in uh, copying 
their their work. Uh, but you know, I I I think Meryl Streep and Jennifer Lawrence are sufficiently inimitable. So I think it's David Zaslav and Bob Iger who uh, you know could be. Uh, could be replaced by AI. The studio's organization released a statement saying they'd made a breakthrough offer on AI that was rejected by SAG. The uh, SAG head negotiator explained at the press conference what the breakthrough offer was, that extras who appear in the background of scenes get paid for one day of work. They get their, their, like, their images scanned, and then those images can be used forever in any medium in any other show without payment or even notice to the person whose image it is. That was the AI breakthrough the studios offered. Uh, well, that doesn't sound like, uh, like much of a breakthrough. <laughs> I know my grandfather was an extra one day in the 1953 filming of Julius Caesar, which had uh, Marlon Brando as, uh, I think, Mark Anthony, and he was wearing a toga. And I would shudder <laughs> to think of that coming up in uh, future future media. So it's 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 a kind of scary uh, prospect <laughs> in that sense, as well as ridiculous in terms of of compensation to to people working on movies. So that's one hundred sixty thousand actors. Meanwhile, the biggest potential strike of the summer is the Teamsters threat to strike UPS, 300,000 members. Negotiations broke down after July 4th. My understanding is they are not negotiating right now. A UPS itself has been tweeting more aggressively of what a great deal it is to work for UPS. It's time to set the record straight. Part-timers can get $20 an hour. You're eligible for a tuition reimbursement plan and side hustles are welcome. Whether it's starting up your own business uh, or exploring creative ventures of your own, UPS is the launchpad for your best ideas. This is a tweet uh, string and a uh, argument at their website for why it's a great deal to be a part-time worker at UPS. I wonder if, if that's going to convince the Teamsters to uh, to settle. I, I think the short answer is no. Uh... Uh, the Teamsters have already won some significant concessions in the talks before they broke off. The air conditioning of the trucks, which, uh, you know, given what the weather is like, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Uh, getting rid of the second tier for full-time workers. But, uh, you know, not enough, uh, not enough for part-time workers compared to what uh, full-time workers make. The fear the union has of uh, more and more part-time workers. Uh, which is a justifiable fear. So I don't, I don't see much, much chance of a settlement on those terms, even despite the generous offer that the union will not help, but look benignly on side gigs. It's uh, it's drivers might have. I want, I want to point out also, if you take 160,000 striking actors, 11,000 striking workers, 15,000 striking hotel workers, and what I would estimate to be about 20,000 of the 320,000 UPS striking workers, if they do go on strike on August 1st, who would be in LA or greater LA, you're, you're talking about, you know, 200,000 striking Angelinos, which I suspect would be the largest total of uh, Angelinos striking at any one time. Now, as you know, what you said about production in Thailand and Morocco makes clear, both for work and for where they live, not all of those folks in the Actors and Writers Guild live in LA, but I suspect most of them do. And all of the hotel workers and the UPS 
folks who work in LA live in greater LA. Uh, so, you know, you've, you've got really, I think, the largest cumulative number of workers on strike in the history of Los Angeles. And of course, the, the last of the big strikes we've been talking about here that could come up later this summer is the auto workers, 150,000 auto workers. Contract negotiations began today, Thursday, with the first of the big three. And um, the new president of the UAW, Sean Fain, refused to begin the negotiations the way they always have in the past with a famous handshake ceremony bet between the union president and the head of the the heads of the big three automakers he said he would only shake hands with his own members uh at this point and that he said was an example of the way we are taking a different approach than in the past i wonder if you would comment on that yeah well i don't think the uaw and uh, and the heads of the three companies shook hands until 1950. there were a whole slew of strikes including you know the first sit-down strike for recognition from 1936 through 1950 that didn't have these handshakes. And that was a time when the union wasn't established. Uh, then as you know, the union didn't get all that much pushback, say from 1950 through 1980, okay, we can do the handshakes. Uh, but since 1980, those unions have been locating plants uh, in places where it's really been hard to unionize either overseas or in the South. Uh, and right now, as they're going into uh, lithium battery production and things like that, they are locating their factories in the south. They're doing, uh, you know, this is this is not the your your father or grandfather's auto companies. And Sean Fain is recognizing that, therefore, uh, it's not going to be your father or grandfather's preliminary handshake to uh, begin negotiations. So the contracts expire on September 14th. Contract talks begin Today, Thursday, with Stellantis. Stellantis it doesn't is not the name of a car. It's the name of the company that took over from Chrysler and Fiat. Um, Ford negotiations begin tomorrow, Friday. General Motors next Tuesday. The last auto strike was in 2019, when 48,000 UAW members at General Motors walked off the job for six weeks. That's a long strike. It is. Now, the, what, the UAW's pattern is to strike one of the big three, which gives the other two a uh, competitive advantage. Uh, we're still turning out cars we can sell, which puts pressure on the company that has been struck. Uh, I would expect that will continue to be the case. You know, it's interesting to me that the auto companies negotiate separately, as you have said, so they can be played off against each other by the union. The movie studios and streamers have a unified front, the AMPTP, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, that bargain as a unit. So the stronger and the weaker ones are, are united on, on what happens. Uh, how come there's this difference between the uh, with the auto workers, auto companies? I'm not sure, except back in the day, uh, the auto companies were all strong and absent foreign competition until the 1970s, they could all essentially afford, you know, what the workers would consider to be pretty good contracts. And uh, there were no notable weaklings that needed to be brought along. It's notable, by the way, that in the current hotel strike in Los Angeles, where most of the hotels are bargaining uh, together, but 
the biggest hotel in LA in terms of the number of rooms, the Bonaventure, has off by itself settled its contract. Uh, the members are still voting on that. Once, if if they vote on it and accept the terms, you know, we'll then have a benchmark, which we'll see if the rest of the industry can meet. Now, I think the studios are afraid exactly of that example and want to uh, hold together. One, one other thing that should be mentioned, since you have companies like uh, Apple, Amazon, now, and Amazon now own having their own studios and Google and Google, these, you know, so the, this isn't like MGM and Paramount of yore, where the movies were all they produced and produced all of the income they were going to get. You know, the income that Amazon and uh, Apple get from uh, the products they produce for uh, streaming or screening or whatever is a small share. So they, they're not, you know, that also uh, increases the bargaining power of the studios and producers. Well, our time is running out here. I do want to cover uh, news from the far right. Change of pace here. The, the, the House Freedom Caucus, the far right group of Congress members, recently expelled Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene because she called Lauren Boebert a, quote, little bitch, close quote, on the floor of Congress. We turn to you for comment and analysis. Well, I mean, the easy thing to say in politics, though, it would be was that Marjorie Taylor Greene was right. But, uh, you know, I mean, th this is what uh, this is kind of what you should expect when you uh, elect the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, uh, you know, behaviorally, I think that's the word. This could have been predicted. And so, you know, the, the I, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene's real sin in the eyes of her one-time fellow Freedom Caucus cohorts was that she was actually uh, becoming more and more a supporter of Kevin McCarthy, who, of course, had to go through 15 uh, votes in order to get enough Freedom Caucusers to make him speaker. And I think that's really what put her on the out. You know, if the far right wants to devour its own, I will not stop them. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Supreme Court in the term just ended was not completely terrible. It surprised us all by doing some good things. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's National Legal Director of the ACLU and a professor at Georgetown Law School. He writes for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Review, and he's legal affairs correspondent for The Nation. David Cole, welcome back. Uh, great to be here again. Well, before we talk about the Supreme Court term that just ended, we need a reminder about the term before this one, the one where they repealed constitutional protection for abortion. In that term, the Republican majority was so far to the right that they left a lot of us thinking there was no limit to what they could do or would do. Precedent meant apparently almost nothing, and not just on abortion rights. Remind us about 2022 at the court. So yeah, this was uh, only the second term that you had the six to three 
Trump-inflected majority, um, and they threw off all the, all constraints. Uh, the biggest one, obviously, was the decision to overturn Roe versus Wade to deny to half of the country a right that they had enjoyed for fifty for fifty years. But they also struck down a, a century-old uh, law in New York that um, required you to show a, re- a good reason to carry a gun in public. They rewrote religious freedom jurisprudence uh, quite uh, radically. They struck down uh, a rule put in place by the Environmental Protection Agency that required producers of electrical power to switch to cleaner forms of energy uh, on the basis of something, a newly minted doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. So it was an extreme, extreme term. And I think many people coming into this term thought we were going to see more of the same. Turning to the term that just ended, I'd like to start with the good news, the surprises. The most important were on voting rights and gerrymandering, challenges to congressional maps enacted by Republican state legislatures after the 2020 census. Two big cases. In the first, Alabama urged the court to declare unconstitutional a central provision of the Voting Rights Act. In the other, Republican legislators in North Carolina invoked this new theory of the independent state legislature to argue they could override a state constitutional limit on partisan gerrymandering. Tell us about those two. The uh, the Alabama case was a case that we at the ACLU did with the um, uh, Legal Defense Fund, and we won under the Voting Rights Act. We demonstrated that uh, Alabama uh, could uh, have two majority black districts, uh, you know, con- consistent with traditional districting principles, that it has a history of racially polarized voting, a history of discrimination in uh, a- access to the electoral process, and therefore, under the Voting Rights Act, it's required to have two districts in which African Americans have a have a, a meaningful opportunity to elect candidates of their choice, and um, Alabama appealed and made some very extreme arguments that, um, you know, you, 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 even though the, the doctrine requires you to show that you could create a second majority black district, you should have to make that showing without considering race at all. Somehow you should just randomly show that you could make a, uh, a, a second black district. They argued that um, the, the, the statute should be read to uh, be violated only when the state uh, is found to have intentionally discriminated on the basis of race, even though Congress had amended the act in 1982 expressly to reject that intent test and instead put in a results test. They argued that the statute was unconstitutional under the 15th Amendment, even though it's been in place now for uh, for f- uh, about 50 um, years. So these were extreme arguments, but they got a stay from the Supreme Court of our win. And, and so you know, uh, that suggested that we that the odds were against us. And I think many people expected us to lose. Many people expected them to adopt these kind of colorblind theories of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and they didn't. Um, um, uh, we, we prevailed in a very strong opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. The same thing was true with the, um, the second case you mentioned, Moore versus Harper. That involved Partisan gerrymandering by the North Carolina legislature, found as such by the North Carolina Supreme Court, and then the, the Republican legislatures of the uh, North Carolina 
went to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, hey, because the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution says legislatures should set the rules for federal elections, um, we are, have the final say here. And the state court cannot uh, overrule a legislative line drawing uh, exercise um, by the state legislature. And let me interrupt to say the implications for the presidential election next year were extremely disturbing. Uh, absolutely. And for partisan gerrymandering, because the court has said already that the United States Constitution doesn't impose a, a sort of justiciable constraint on partisan gerrymandering. Um, but you can go to state courts to, to, to make that claim. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Uh, and at the end of the day, the court um, rejected this independent state legislature theory and said, no, state legislatures from the beginning are the creatures of the state constitution. And so, of course, they are constrained by their own state constitution and state courts have the appropriate role to play there. So those were two huge um, victories on racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering. And again, everybody was surprised. And the North Carolina decision means a lot more action is going to be happening in state Supreme Courts on, and that makes our efforts to win elections for state Supreme Court justices in the states where justices are elected all the more important. And Wisconsin recently provided a splendid example of how progressives can mobilize to elect good state Supreme Court justices. Absolutely. And, and you know, make no mistake about it, the, the, uh, the right wing is putting a lot of money behind state court elections of state Supreme Court justices. So, you know, people who care about civil rights and civil liberties, they really need to focus on these elections and make sure that, you know, when you vote, you vote like your rights depend on it. So now we turn to the bad news, the top of the list. You already mentioned affirmative action in college admissions, also student debt, also a First Amendment right to discriminate against gay couples. Let's, let's start with affirmative action. You know, the wins were not limited to voting rights, right? There were significant wins. There was a, a, a challenge to the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is a law that seeks to keep Native American families together. The court rejected that challenge uh, by a vote of seven to two. I mean, big picture, the three liberal justices on the court were in the majority in divided opinions more often than Justice Alito and Justice Thomas. Also important that there were some really devastating losses and the affirmative action is front and center. Uh, diversity, which the court had always found was a compelling interest that justified the consideration of race as a factor in a holistic assessment of individuals for, um, for admission to school, was not a sufficiently uh, clear and precise to be a compelling state interest to justify that kind of of action. Well, you know, the court has recognized many compelling interests that are just as amorphous as and, and difficult to quantify as diversity. National security, that's a compelling interest, but how do you quantify national security? Or integrity of the court. The court has uh, previously said that integrity of the court is a compelling state interest. How do you quantify? Those are not quantifiable, but nonetheless, the court has said that they're compelling. So, you know, and, and in, in finding that diversity is because it's not quantifiable, it can't justify this action. The court makes no effort to justify its overturning of 45 years of precedent, the kinds of settled expectations that are in place. Um, it just does what it, you know, 
uh, does because now it has uh, the votes to do so. My favorite was, you know, they, they, they say, well, we always said it was going to be temporary. And they point to a decision um, in, 20, in 2003, Grutter, case from University of Michigan, which upheld affirmative action, but said, we hope and expect that in 25 years, this will no longer be necessary. So that's what they said. It was a hope, hope and a prayer. But they said, no, no, it's a limit. Well, 2003 plus 25, that gets you to 2028. Not yes, it 2020, does. Not <laughs> 2023. So what did they do? They drop a foot and they say, well, you know, it may be 2023, but the students who are applying for next year's admission <laughs> will be the class of 2028. I mean, that is like, I mean, I, I, that's math for lawyers, right? <laughs> Somehow that, that justifies the uh, erasure of, of five years. No, what justified the erasure of five years is that they got three votes. And now, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about one part of uh, the Roberts uh, opinion here, because it seemed like he did provide instructions for how schools could still consider race in the admission process. He wrote, quote, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, close quote. So if kids write about their experiences of race and racism in their personal statement, that's fine. And colleges can invite them to do that in their applications, and colleges probably will. But of course, that makes the whole process more subjective, which I don't really think is what the Republicans uh, had in mind here. And the majority also did not ban class-based affirmative action, programs giving preference to low-income applicants or first-generation applicants or applicants from, lost, from schools in low-income districts. How important are these other issues uh, in the wake of, of what they did decide? Yeah, I think very important. I think that sentence you read may be the most important sentence in the decision. Um, and, you know, it comes right out of the argument. At the argument, it was the first question that Justice Barrett asked the challengers of the affirmative action um, programs at Harvard and UNC was, what about an essay? And I think Justice Kavanaugh may also have um, showed uh, interest in that. And so I think they needed, you know, to have that sentence in there to cobble together a majority. And it does leave open some consideration of race as long as it's very, you know, very individualized and it's tied to some characteristic, some race-neutral characteristic like you know, courage or um, ability to overcome adversity or stick-to-itiveness or what have you, whatever it may be, um, it, it can be considered. Now, at the same time, they, he says, now this doesn't mean you can you know, do indirectly what you can't do directly. And so I think there's going to be a lot of litigation over whether, you know, that is in fact individualized and whether it's become a proxy for uh, sort of kind of racial, um, you know, racial targets and goals and the like. But it does, it's, it's an important, very important caveat, as is um, the caveat with respect to race neutral um, means. As you know, in California, you know, it's been a long time that the, the yeah. voters have said no affirmative action. And so to maintain any semblance of diversity, the California universities have had to look at a lot of other race-neutral factors that are aimed at uh, attracting a diverse class. And, you know, essentially, I think the court has said those are permissible, 
but it's not they're they're not holdings and um and and there will be challenges uh coming down the pike of course the overwhelming majority of students do not attend the elite schools that practice affirmative action they go to colleges that admit most applicants or all applicants the ruling on student debt in contrast affects a lot more people 43 million people tell us about that one and about this major questions doctrine yeah so this was uh this is that that same doctrine that i that they, that they newly minted last term to strike down the epa rule i mean it basically you know in this case the question was whether President Biden had the authority under a statute uh, that gave him in emergency situations the power to uh, suspend or waive various student loan obligations. And so on its face, it said waive, that he had the power to waive. And so he exercised the power to waive. Uh, and he waived it for 43 million people. Um, and what the court, so, so a textualist court a court that is supposedly, this is what the conservatives say, they are textualists, we are bound by the language Congress used, and we will enforce that, whether we agree with it or not. A textualist would say, well, that Congress said he could waive, he waived, that's the end of the story. But no, the court said, well, this is a major question because it's new and big. Never before has a president waived this many debts uh, on, on this kind of a scale. So it's a new and big action. It's a major question. We require Congress to be super clear, super specific about authorizing these kinds of actions. We're not going to allow the president to do so on the basis of a term like wave, which literally says he can do precisely <laughs> what he did. Um, so it's a very, you know, very disturbing. And that argument in that case, you know, the whole question was whether was simply whether wave meant wave. <laughs> you had people like Chief Justice Roberts saying, well, do you think it's fair that the president uh, waived you know, student debts for students who go to college, but not for students who developed debts, uh, you know, while, uh, while doing lawn care? You know, it may or may not be fair, but that is not the question before <laughs> the court. The court, the question before the court is, did the president have authority under the statute to do it? And, uh, and you know, the, the, the court said, uh, no, even though the statute on its face said yes. Then there was the Colorado uh, gay rights uh, case, which involved a website designer who claimed she wanted to design wedding websites, but not for same-sex weddings. Tell us about that one. For over a century, there have been public accommodations laws, which basically say if you choose to open a business to the public, you have to serve the public and you can't discriminate based on you know who customers are it's it's been th those kinds of laws have been around for over a century including colorado's law has been around for about a century um, and over time uh, businesses various businesses have said that violates my first amendment rights and the court has always rejected those arguments a law firm said it violated its First Amendment right to not to associate with women, but to require it to you know, uh, recognize a woman as a partner uh, in a law firm. A, a school and a college said, you know, admitting black students would violate our First Amendment right to choose not to associate with black students and to choose to 
um, you know, promulgate uh, segregationist uh, points of view. Uh, and the court has always rejected those arguments. And the, and the reason you reject, the court has rejected those arguments is the question is whether the government, whether the law is targeted at speech and designed to suppress particular conduct because of what it communicates, or whether the law is neutral as to expression and is aimed at some kind of conduct. If it's the latter, if it's a generally applicable law, if it applies equally to hardware stores and architecture firms, which are expressive, and bookstores, which sell, you know, First Amendment protected materials, and it's about discrimination against customers based on who they are. It's not about what the book says or what the, you know, architecture's design looks like. Then the courts have said um, the First Amendment does not give you a right to discriminate. Um, in this case, they. They turn that on its head, and Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion for the six Republican justices saying, no, if you've got an expressive business and you object to the message that providing your service to a particular person or class of people would send, you get a First Amendment license to discriminate. Justice Gorsuch wrote that if a website designer could be made to serve a gay couple, Nothing would stop states from requiring a Muslim film director to direct a film with a Zionist message. Well, we certainly wouldn't want that. But was that was what was at stake here? No, absolutely not. And that's a straw man. I mean, here's the thing. Artists, film directors, writers, for the most part, they're not public accommodations. You know, I've, I've written for pay for my entire career. And I write for who I want to write for. And I don't, you know, offer my services to everybody. And so I'm not a public accommodation. I'm not a business open to all. And I can discriminate. I can decide I want to write only for Christian magazines or only for Jewish magazines or only for white supremacist magazines. I have that right. Um, and, and, and the court, you know, the, the public accommodations law would not apply. But if I take my writing skill and I say, no, I'm not going to engage in this freelance enterprise. I'm going to open a business that serves the public, and I'm going to provide editing, you know, um, assistance uh, across the board to the public. Now I can't say, um, you know, we're going to turn away, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, Jewish uh, Jewish uh, uh, students uh, need not uh, need not apply. Um, th so that's the difference. The film director is not a business open to the public, but if he had opened a film studies department and, and offered it to the public, he could not say, you know, if you're Jewish, don't bother applying. So big picture here, the court delivered many surprises this term compared to last term and more bipartisan opinions and a lot more protection for civil rights and civil liberties than anyone expected. How do you explain this shift? It's anyone's guess, uh, but here's my guess. Protest matters. People responded to last term uh, very loudly and very clearly. We were not happy that the court overturned a right uh, that had uh, been in place for 50 years for half of the country. We were not happy that the court made it easier for people to carry guns in crowded public places without any justification for doing so. We were not happy that the court 
really weakened the EPA's ability to protect us from global warming and climate change. And there was tremendous criticism on the court, not just for the substance of those results, but for the way it um, got to those results. And the court's legitimacy fell to the lowest it's been all century, all century. Uh, and you know, you started to see a lot more uh, criticism of the court on all fronts, including ethics fronts, right? Justice Thomas has been not reporting about his uh, various uh, trips for a very long time, but suddenly now there's great focus on it. So, and I think all of that protest matters. I think the court hears it. The court recognizes that its 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 um, its power ultimately turns on its legitimacy, and its legitimacy turns on its being perceived as an institution that does not simply engage in political, uh, you know, power plays but actually applies law, follows precedent, uh, and tries to do justice in a, in a nonpartisan way. And, and so, you know, I don't think they, they sort of, you know, con- I think this operates in a more subconscious way than a, than a conscious way, but I think they, they pulled in their, you know, uh, the reins a little bit um, uh, this time, and they picked their battles. Again, some very, you know, I don't want to underestimate the devastating losses, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think what it showed is we can push back. We can push back. And if we speak up, if our voices are heard, that is, can be a constraining factor on how even a six to three Supreme Court acts. Protest matters. David Cole is National Legal Director of the ACLU. He wrote about this year's Supreme Court rulings for the New York Review. David, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Same old stories back again. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Cornell West should run as a Democrat, not as the nominee of the Green Party. That's what the nation's editor, D.D. Guttenplan, says, along with Bhaskar Sunkara, the nation's president. Don's books include American Radical, The Life and Times of I.F. Stone, also The Nation, A Biography, and The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, some of our friends say Cornell West's announcement that he's running for president is not serious. It's just an ego trip of some kind. You open your piece. Cornell West is a very serious man. Please explain. Well, quite simply, Cornell West has been involved in politics, however you call politics, for a very long time. He's also a major public intellectual. In fact, as we say in the piece, aside from Noam Chomsky, it's hard to think of another public intellectual with Cornell West's breadth of engagement or political experience. You know, he was an advisor to the Bill Bradley campaign in 2000. He was a very important surrogate and endorser of Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 20 and 2020. And was uh, a supporter of Barack Obama in 2012. So he's someone who has a track record in electoral politics, although not as a candidate. And he's certainly someone who 
deserves to be taken seriously. Cornell supported Biden in 2020. His argument that year was that, quote, a mediocre, milquetoast, neoliberal centrist is better than fascism, and a fascist catastrophe is worse than a neoliberal disaster, close quote. Now he says, quote, by refusing to speak to the needs of the poor and working people, the Democratic Party helps to facilitate and enable the Trumps and DeSantis's. What do you say to that? I think he's absolutely right. Thanks in no small measure to Bernie Sanders, Biden ran on an incredibly progressive platform in 2020, and as we know, he defeated Trump. But his first term has matched every success with a disappointment, because let's remember the Biden administration did terrific things to end childhood poverty in America, to support people's incomes during the COVID pandemic, but let many of those measures lapse. He, he advocated climate and industrial policy initiatives with the Inflation Reduction Act, but also approved a massive new drilling project in Alaska. The choice between four more years of Biden or Donald Trump is not difficult. But if ever there was a president in need of a left opposition, it's the centrist now in the White House. So, you know, there is a great deal of disappointment in the land. David Dan makes a very important ar argument in The Prospect, which is that you can't appraise the utility of improving people's lives as a means of winning votes unless you actually improve people's lives. And the Democratic Party has de delivered a great deal of rhetoric under Joe Biden about delivering people's lives, but time and again, it has failed to deliver. So in that sense, Cornell West is absolutely right. He's also right, I think, to point out the danger of this kind of cynical politics, which is that it leaves people disillusioned with government. It leaves people disillusioned with the potential for social democratic change. And as I've written in The Nation before, if you close the door to a populist left and you leave the door open to a populist right, you are walking on very dangerous ground. And yet Cornell's plan is to run against Biden as a third party candidate for the Green Party. That is itself helping to facilitate Donald Trump or whoever the Republican candidate might be. Uh, actually, that's not quite my view, John. My view is that it is, to pitch it at Dr. West's level, an expensive spirit and a waste of shame to run as a <laughs> candidate. It's an expensive spirit in a waste of shame to run as a Green Party candidate. Nice. Democratic platform is available and is the best public platform for raising policy issues. And that if he is as serious as we hope he is, he ought to run as a Democrat. That failing to run as a Democrat lays him open to exactly the kind of condemnation you laid out, which is this, this is a self-indulgent ego trip at best and at worst, a vote sucker in the general election, which may en enable a Donald Trump to squeak past. So that's why we think he should run as a Democrat. But that's, that's different from saying that what he's doing now is preparing the way for Donald Trump. I think what he's doing now is preparing the way for his own political irrelevancy. Cornell, as you say, uh, worked hard to elect Obama, but uh, our colleague Joan Walsh pointed out at thenation.com, once Obama became president, 
Cornell called him, quote, a black mascot of Wall Street oligarchs and a black puppet of corporate plutocrats. He went on to claim that Obama was afraid of, quote, free black men, close quote, thanks to his white ancestry in Ivy League education. I think black voters who know those quotes are unlikely to vote for Cornell in 2024, and it casts a shadow over his present campaign, seems to me. Again, we're going to have to differ, John. After all, Joan Walsh is the person who thought that black voters who knew that Hillary Clinton had described young black men as super predators and had rubber stamped her husband's crime bill were going to nonetheless choose to vote for Hillary in 2016. I think black voters are as discerning as any other voters, and they'll decide whether Joe Biden or Cornell West speaks to their interests on the issues. I do think that Cornell West's, among his great talents, is a talent for pungency of expression, uh, which you and I as fellow writers can only envy. Yes. Uh, that doesn't mean he's always yes. on the money. Yes. But uh, certainly he has a way of putting things that sinks in and lets you remember it. And that's yet another reason why I think he would be an adornment to the Democratic primary debate stage. In 2016, uh, Cornell supported, uh, worked hard again for Bernie in the primaries and then switched his support to Jill Stein rather than Hillary in the presidential race. The latest news on this front is that this week, Obama strategist David Axelrod compared Cornell West to the Jill Stein campaign of 2016 uh, and reminded us that some people at least have blamed the Green Party 2016 campaign for splitting the vote for Hillary Clinton in key electoral states. Jill Stein did win more votes than Trump's margin of victory in Wisconsin and Michigan. And of course, if Hillary had won Wisconsin and Michigan, she would have become president. But of course, that argument assumes that people who voted for Jill Stein would have voted for Hillary if Stein were not in the race. But of course, they voted for Jill Stein because they did not want to vote for Hillary. That's um, and the only people who really make that argument regularly are the Hillary Clinton supporters who refuse to look in the mirror and, and acknowledge what a terrible campaign she ran, including failing to actually campaign actively in Wisconsin and Michigan, and also the many, many reasons why she was an awful candidate at that moment. I am not a, a fan of spoiler candidates. If it comes down to the choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I will vote for Joe Biden, just as I did in 2020. But that doesn't mean that Joe Biden doesn't need a hard shove to the left, both for the good of the country, because right now he's running a Rose Garden campaign, which is not only uninspiring, but desperately depressing, but also for the sake of his own campaign, because otherwise, as John Nichols has argued, we see the, the uh, spotlight to the, to the Republicans during the entire primary season. If there's no Democratic primary action, then as people become engaged with the election, all they have to do is try and figure out whether Ron DeSantis is better or worse than Donald Trump. That's not a task I think anybody should be condemned to. Well, I think the best argument for Cornell running in the Democratic primaries is Bernie Sanders' history as a candidate uh, in the Democratic primaries. Primaries. Bernie Sanders was has never been a member of the Democratic Party. He always says he's a Democratic Socialist, but he made that very bold decision to enter the Democratic primaries with his politics. 
And I think we all agree that Bernie's primary campaigns really did make the Biden presidency more progressive. And that's the role that you and I are hoping that Cornell could play. Well, yes, I partly agree. Today's going to be a day of partial agreement. Jeff. <laughs> okay. I think if if Cornell West only has the same influence that Bernie had, which is to say completely revolutionizing the Democratic Party platform, firing up the activist base, giving young people a reason to turn out and be excited and think about politics, that would be great. But I think there's a difference between Cornell West and Bernie Sanders that cuts both ways. You know, Bernie Sanders is a senior senator from the state of Vermont. He's a very experienced legislator, and he's got a lot of savvy when it comes to Washington. Cornell West is none of those things. On the other hand, Cornell West is a comparatively young man, and he could actually become president. And as Baskar and I argue in this editorial, that would be historic, and we think he'd be a terrific president. So running just to influence the debate may not be worth the candle. But nobody runs for president just to influence the debate. You have to have, as Barack Obama acknowledged, a certain kind of psychosis to think you can be president. And I would encourage Cornell West to entertain that kind of psychosis and see how far he gets. D.D. Gutton plan. You can read his editorial co-authored by Bhaskar Sunkara titled Cornell West Should Run as a Democrat. That's at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. It's great to be partially in agreement. <laughs> Thank you, John. It always makes me feel better when, when we're at least in partial agreement. <laughs>for today's living in the usa our social media maven is renee reynolds kpfk's programming traffic director is matt perez thanks as always to rye cooter for our theme music mambo sinuendo living in the usa is recorded and produced at our blythe avenue studios in los angeles if you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.